Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week I, I am examining the sequel to my, my enemy of Stephen King's novels, uh, Mr. Mercedes. Uh, the sequel being a vast improvement um, as it, it isn't really connected all that much to Mr. Mercedes and gives us a fresh crime tale um, that does include characters from the first novel but spins out in its own direction and is brought to you by Moleskin Notebooks. But before I get any further in Finders Keepers, I'm going to read a listener email. Um, and this one is from Nova. And Nova writes, You found me when replying to a tweet I made about John Coffey being a breaker. I followed that tweet to your account and found you had a podcast, gave it a listen, got through most episodes to date of works I've seen, read, and some I don't plan on doing, like SK's works on Aliens, Tommyknockers, and The Dreamcatcher. Always into horror when I was a kid. I ran to the section in the video store to look at the VHS boxes and try to see which one I could get my aunt to rent. I saw it when it came out and bought it again on DVD when I got my first DVD player. My first SK book was Skeleton Crew that I bought at a flea market when I was in my formative years. So first King story was The Mist, the scene where the bag boy gets pulled under the door. Well, stay with me. After that, it was hit or miss. I tried to read Insomnia, but after after but it was too much for my young self and overwhelmed me but king's been there to help me work with my dyslexia why i'm a slow reader from that time on i finally finished the dark tower after i don't know how many years i did it because i was big into firefly when the dvd and serenity came out my friend told me i should read that along with harry potter because there were characters in the dark tower who were like wash and zoe from firefly and the books made references to the harry potter books it took me this long to get through it because I kept reading his other stuff in between as breaks in between the series, and sometimes, because I'm a slow reader, I just had to take breaks when I felt the story getting dry. Wizard and Glass almost killed me. It was the driest, in my opinion. So I finished the Harry Potter series first and then just recently read uh, The Dark Tower in October of this year. I wanted to stop where King recommended, but I also wanted to listen to your podcast spoiler-free, so I read it until the end. I just listened to your thoughts on Wizard and Glass regarding Susanna Dean. I don't know if Susanna Dean is the twinner of Susan Delgado, but I do have a theory that she remembers being on that same journey with Roland, being drawn over and over and over again. Maybe Detta remembers more so. Maybe that's why she's so pissed off and tired of Roland on their journey. I wonder how many times Susanna has left Roland like that. I just think on some level Susanna knows more, and maybe it's because of her alternate personalities that she even has this ability. But I like to think it's the reason she left Roland in the end. Okay, this won't be the last time you'll hear from me. I'll be pecking around at you on Twitter, the Gram, and maybe Facebook. And once I've organized my thoughts, I'll probably hit you up again and again and again because Ka is a wheel. Catch you on the flip side, Waves. If she's gone through this with Roland before then, of course she's learned and learned not to get caught up in his mess this time and good for her because Roland is truly a mess and selfish and I like that she escapes and gets to be happy with Eddie and Jake in another way or when. Question, is Sue, Susan, and Susanna a kingism? I've only read maybe about half of King's works but I notice the name or variation of such 
comes up a bit in his stories. There are at least three Eddies. Um, thanks for the podcast. I'm going to keep listening and telling all who will listen. Thank you again, Nova. Nova, thank you for, for writing in. I love what you say about Susanna. That is a great um, that's a great theory, and I think that has a lot of a lot of credence to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I and, and I don't even I don't even feel very strong saying that Susan is a Twitter <coughs> of Susanna. Um, but I really like the idea of of her on some level knowing what's about to come because of what's happened before. So anyone, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. If you haven't done so, head on over to iTunes uh, to leave a review and a subscription because that would do a lot in just helping get the Stephen Kingcast out there. All right, guys, let's talk about Finders Keepers, part one, Buried Treasure. Now, just as he did with his previous Hodges novel, King knows how to open strong. We immediately mean John Rothstein who was interrupted from his sleep by three men in ski masks. King gives the extra touch by giving each mask a distinctive color, just for that visual pop. We quickly learn that Rothstein is a wealthy, highly regarded author, perhaps a mix between Salinger and John Updike, the former because of the reclusive lifestyle and the latter due to the title of his books, The Runner, The Runner Sees Action, The Runner Slows Down. Not Unlike Rabbit Run, Rabbit Redo, Rabbit is Rich, Rabbit at Rest, Rabbit Remembered. What happens next is a very tense and verbal showdown between the head invader Morris Bellamy and the aging author, the zealous fan who believes he is entitled to getting what he wants from the writer. To make a long story short, after trading barbs, the author goes out on his own terms, giving Maury the ultimatum, and with this, King closes his introduction and opens up the next chapter in his Bill Hodges series. When comparing the two openings, I'd have to say I'm going to go with this over Mr. Mercedes. This introduction opens up a lot of unknown possibilities and pushes the story heavily into crime fiction, unlike Mr. Mercedes, which vacillated between crime, mystery, thriller. It's bizarre, I know, to separate these three genres, but I feel the previous novel suffered from an identity crisis. Here, it's crime with a capital C. It's not a cold-blooded murder like the previous book. It's a crime. Murder isn't the intention. If crime is the motivation, then provides a structure for the rest of the novel. And as for the crime, to me, it's already more interesting than Brady Hartsfield's opening salvo. Murder by Car was famously immortalized by Christine, and then in From a Buick 8, with a string of car deaths or injuries sprinkled throughout all of his works. Here, we have a philosophical argument over ownership of a fictional character and a debate over what the author owes the reader. It's a much more loaded quandary that invokes the similarly styled misery. And whereas I criticized Mr. Mercedes for its redundancy, I applaud Finders Keepers for its similarly um, similarity to Misery because the relationship between author and reader has not been explored often in King's works. However, it's been 28 years since he's had something to say about the relationship between author and reader. And I would like to see what King has to say now. With the hook out of the way, King doubles back to before the opening of Mr. Mercedes, where we meet the Saubers, whose father-slash-husband Tom is getting ready to attend the job fair that will mark Brady's first murder spree. We get 
an intersection of perspectives, as Tom spies the two characters who again serve as our point of view victims from the first book. And here, at the job fair, King again shows the desperation and fear that comes with standing in this line, a commentary on the hopelessness and economics that um, he failed to really expand upon in the previous novel. I feel like there's so much to say about this, and he really explores this concept in depth to great extent here in Finder's Keepers um, to the point where it is the primary motivation of our characters. And he does not just abandon it like he does in Mr. Mercedes. King continues to flip back and forth between the time periods, again peeking in on Morris after Rothstein's murder. Um, so he follows it up by murdering his accomplices. He follows it up by murdering his accomplices, and all the while he thinks of how Rothstein was a sellout, which, like I said earlier, paints him as a stand-in for the overzealous Holden Caulfield fan taking action against the quote-unquote phonies. I should already note, or I should note now that already um, there are similarities between Maury and Brady from Mr. Mercedes. For one, both are angry young men driven to murder. Two, both have deceased fathers. Three, both have complicated relationships with their mothers. King switches gears and checks back in with the Saubers family a year after the attack. And King has fun with this scene through the perspective of the son, Pete, who thinks that his parents' constant fights are foolish. It's a great perspective, him criticizing the regime above him that he can't control, with his parents doing the exact same thing, lashing out against the powers that be for closing the school that Linda had worked at, at the police for not catching the perp. And King, through the perspective of the son, Pete, takes this opportunity to turn it into a play literally becomes stage directions and, and just written like a play, further making a mockery of the real-life pain felt by the husband and wife. While adventuring outside, Pete finds the present-day trunk that 1978 Maury had used to store the cash in the notebooks. With the discovery, we are firmly in the realm of crime fiction. He decides to fix his broken family by sending envelopes of the cash through the mail, and thankfully, it works! Meanwhile, in 1978, Maury winds up getting blackout drunk and raping a woman, an act which sends him to jail. So far, King has done a good job at conveying the idiocy of this character, who goes out for drinks to get his mind off the possibility of going to jail only to cause an act which sends him straight to jail. In the present day, a teenage Pete saved his family, and now with the discovered money dried up, starts thinking about selling the notebooks, which puts him in the path of Andy Halliday, the book dealer who knows about the murders. Flashing back, we get to know what Maury's life was like in prison, which includes a lot of rape. What's interesting, not the rape, um, is that while in prison, he does what he criticizes Jimmy Gold of doing in the Rothstein books, selling out. He survives in prison by becoming a letter writer for other inmates, and at one point, he even thinks about advertising, the career that Gold had fallen into that caused Maury to grow hateful to the writer in the first place. At this point, I just I can't help but compare this book's antagonist with that of Mr. Mercedes. In Mr. Mercedes, Brady was a composite of a thousand horrible traits without a justifiable reason. I know that King gave him an origin, um, tough times, uh, murders the brother, 
incest with the mother, but it never felt genuine. Here, however, we have a rebellious youth, sarcastic, lecherous, filled with rage, whose only balm comes from the identification of the main character of Rothstein's books. This is a cleaner, more defined set of character traits that build an actual character, unlike Brady, who, to me, never felt real. I do give Stephen King credit for putting us in the mind of Brady the entire time, and he does it well, but Brady never felt real. When King provides us the scenes with Maury and his mother arguing over Jimmy Gold, it's so much more truthful than Brady's mother's booze-soaked come-on to her son. During the argument, King presents concepts that any parent of a teenager, or former teenager, will recognize, which we get on page 141. Morris, very softly, Once I wanted to be the female version of Jimmy, just as you want to be Jimmy now. Jimmy Gold, or someone like him, is the island of exile where most teenagers go to wait until childhood becomes adulthood. What you need to see, what Rothstein finally saw, although it took him three books to do it, is that most of us become everyone. I certainly did. She looked around. Why else would we be living here on Sycamore Street? King details Maury's time in prison with efficiency, showing us how important the trunk with the stolen money and the notebooks are. It's his only hope, and knowing what we know, we should grow very concerned for Pete, who is about to reach out to Maury's co-conspirator, Andy, an act which will put Pete right in the crosshairs of a man, um, of an ex-con who has nothing to lose. Part 2, Old Pals. Now, God damn it, I was enjoying this book so much, I forgot that it was a sequel to a novel whose main character was the most ineffectual hero out of any Stephen King story to date. And when he wrote his name in the beginning of this section, my initial instinct was to fling Finder's Keepers across the room. But then I took a deep breath and decided to give Kermit Hodges another shot. One of the reasons I disliked Mr. Mercedes as much as I did um, was because it reeked of the origin story. The origin of how Bill becomes a hero, how he joined with Jerome and Holly. Now that all of that has been established, I am far more interested in seeing what King has to offer. And in a fun twist, it turns out the name of the book has a dual meaning. One, of course, speaks to the discovery of the trunk of cash, but is also the name of their detective agency. After reacquainting with Hodges in his new life, we see how entangled Pete is, having become embroiled in a battle of wills with Andrew Halliday, Maury's old book dealer accomplice. Pete shows strength for a high school kid, but he's swimming in deep waters, and since we've seen what happens when an all-American boy tangos with a wily old villain in the pages of Apt Pupil, we know this can't end well. To complicate things, his sister Tina, who was conveniently friends with Jerome's sister Barbara, whose life was saved at the Around Here concert, goes to Bill Hodges for help. Maury finally goes to unearth the trunk, only to discover that it's empty, and when he starts to cry, it's thoroughly believable. We, un we get it. King has done a great job at establishing his need for those books. His only option is to retrace his steps, meaning that it's only po the only possible person that could have anything to do with it could be Andy. And things are not looking good for Peter. Part 3, Peter and the Wolf. Maury confronts Andy, who spills the beans on Peter. 
and the more coincidental aspects of this novel become apparent. It's too coincidental that Peter goes to Andy, who was in on it. It's coincidental that days later, Maury goes to Andy. It's coincidental that Hodge is involved because Peter's sister is friends with Jerome's sister. The plot is now functioning on a couple too-good-to-be-true coincidences that strain credulity for me. Anyway, after getting the info that he needs, Maury kills Andy. Then we watch Hodges visit the semi-comatose Brady in the hospital. And I get what King was going for here. It should feel like Batman visiting the Joker in Arkham Asylum. However, because Holly and Jerome were the ones who did most of the legwork and the ones that stopped Brady, it'd be like Batman visiting the Joker after Commissioner Gordon was the one to take him down. Right? This does not pack the same punch. I get that Stephen King is trying to establish them as these two sides of the same coin, but Bill didn't stop Brady. I mean, Bill kind of was a mess, but whatever. Things, however, start to take a very interesting turn, as Brady seems to have the ability of telekinetic powers. Hodges thinks about rumors that have been spreading about Brady, and we wonder what those rumors might entail or where this can be going. Any sort of supernatural or paranormal activity was completely unexpected. And though it's not uncommon to mix the supernatural into a crime story, like the the, the works of John Connolly, King needs to tread carefully here because it's a very, very tricky balance. The end game starts to build with Maury killing Andy and waiting for Peter. Hodges attempts to persuade Peter to let him go. I'm sorry, to let him help, but Pete is too stubborn. Pete enters the wolf's den with Hodges, Jerome, and Holly, uh, try to piece everything together, getting the major pieces from Pete's English teacher. Pete manages to survive an encounter with Morris, but his string of bad decisions continue as he fails to let Hodges know about the fact that Morris knows where he lives. Morris, having had enough, gets to the house before Peter does and shoots his mother in the head. Thankfully, she lives, but Maury kidnaps Tina, and Pete and Maury have their showdown at the rec department in a Mexican standoff, Maury with the gun and Pete with a flame over the lighter fluid-soaked notebooks. And then King gives us the final confrontation. Beginning on page 402. I know, Pete says, and since you're such a fan, here's a little treat for you. In the last book, Jimmy meets Andrea Stone again. How about that? The wolf's eyes widen. Andrea? He does? How? What happens? Under such circumstances, the question is beyond bizarre, but it's also sincere. Honest. Pete realizes that the fictional Andrea, Jimmy's first love, is real to this man in in a way Pete's sister is not. No human being is as real to red lips as Jimmy Gold, Andrea Stone, Mr. Meeker, Pierre Raton, also known as the car salesman of doom, and all of the rest. This is surely a marker of true, deep insanity, but that feel, but that must make Pete crazy too, because he knows how this lunatic feels. Exactly how. He lit up with the same excitement, the same amazement, when Jimmy glimpsed Andrea in Grant Park during the Chicago riots of 1968. Tears actually came to his eyes. Such tears, Pete realizes, yes, even now, especially now, because their lives hang upon it, mark the core power of make-believe. 
It's what caused thousands to weep when they learned that Charles Dickens had died of a stroke. It's why, for years, a stranger put a rose on Edgar Allan Poe's grave every January 19th, Poe's birthday. It's also what would make Pete hate this man even if he wasn't pointing a gun at his sister's trembling, vulnerable midsection. Red Lips took the life of a great writer, and why? Because Rothstein dared to follow a character who went in a direction Red Lips didn't like? Yes, that was it. He did it out of his own core belief that the writing was somehow more important than the writer. Hodges rushes in, distracts Maury, which causes Pete to drop the lighter. The books ignite, causing a fire, which burns Maury to death as he tries to put it out. After. It concludes with Bill once again visiting Brady, learning that a nurse had committed suicide on duty and addresses the rumors that Brady could turn on the sink from across the room. The ending is incredibly tense, with the sense that Bill is poking a sleeping dragon. And the book concludes with confirmation that Brady does now have paranormal abilities. Okay, guys, Stephen Kingisms. Uh, the first is the writer. Uh, John Rothstein is the latest Stephen King writer. Um, we have seen many Stephen King writers in the pages of um, Stephen King's books, and Joe Rothstein is the latest. Um, number two, uh, car death slash attack. Um, we have definitely seen this in many, many Stephen King stories as well. Number three, prison. Shawshank Redemption comes to mind. Four, catchphrase shit don't mean shit uh the stephen king catchphrase is something that we have seen time and time and time again and at one point um maury is squeezing his fist so hard it leaves crescents in his palms which is a visual that stephen king has oft referred to easter eggs uh holly listens to the shawshank movie soundtrack oh and and one more stephen kingisms uh maury has red lips um that's often a trait of stephen king's villains um and then we have uh, the Shawshank movie soundtrack um, in as an Easter egg. Um, Holly listens to the Shawshank movie soundtrack. And room 217. This is the famous room from The Shining. Um, this is also the hospital room holding Brady. So there we go. Okay, guys. Now, here's the deal. Um, this is a very, very short review. Um, and I apologize. It's not even, it's not even a half an hour. But... Uh, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know why I didn't go into as much detail. Maybe, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a reason why I didn't go into too much detail because I enjoyed it. I really did enjoy reading Finders Keepers. I was unsure of how I was going to feel when I sat down to read it because I had disliked Mr. Mercedes as much as I did. And I just found that by starting the novel, with characters that weren't in Mr. Mercedes and, and not even really having it tied to the events of Mr. Mercedes really worked in its benefit. It just, um, like I said, it, it created the crime story that I, I kind of wanted from, from the first book. And even even Bill Hodges didn't bother me this time around um, in the book. And even though I feel as though the the scenes between him and Brady are unearned, I still enjoy them, and I like the idea of him, of Bill Hodges, truly testing his mettle by going up against 
Brady, a character that in the last episode I questioned whether or not he is a strong Stephen King villain or the weakest Stephen King villain because of the author's... Um, just built him up full of all of these character traits that we've seen in Steve, better Stephen King villains. But with the idea that Brady is now becoming this paranormal villain, it's going to make things very, very interesting. So I am looking forward to End of Watch more than I had looked forward to Finders Keepers. So this could all hinge. Like how I feel about these three novels is all going to hinge on how he ends it um, because he really could put these first two books in in context that uh, that really shine a, a different light on Mr. Mercedes. Um, I don't really have that many that many issues with with Finders Keepers aside from some coincidences that I, I think kind of hurt um, the novel. I'd rather see Bill Hodges be a detective and detect these things rather than have the plot points align themselves in a way that allows for Bill Hodges to enter the story. I'd like him to investigate his way into the story, but that's that's just me. Maybe in the next novel we'll actually see his investigative skills put to the forefront of the novel, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, guys, so... Um, what we have next is uh, my review of Stephen King's latest collection of short stories, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. And in previous reviews of Stephen King's short stories, I uh, reviewed a handful of the short stories. And I'm proud to say that with The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, I'm going to be reviewing um, every single one of the, the stories in this particular collection, and it was a very, very fun collection. I really enjoyed my time with The Bazaar of Bad Dreams. It's a great collection of short stories. It's a great title of short stories, um, and the hardcover edition is great. It is just uh, the, the mix of black, of black and white and blue. Um, it's very, very striking. It's actually one of Stephen King's most striking covers that, that I can remember from any of his novels. Uh, but we don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to say that if you were thinking of, of picking up Bazaar of Bad Dreams, I would strongly recommend it because there's some incredible stories in there that I'm looking forward to talking about on the next episode. So if you haven't done so already, guys, feel free to head on over to Stephen Kingcast um, on, on iTunes to, re, to write a review and um, a subscription, and that will go a long way in helping out the Stephen Kingcast. And if you want to just talk to me about Mr. Mercedes or Finders Keepers or how you got involved in Stephen King or any thoughts that you might have, uh, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, and I'll, I'll get back to you eventually. And, uh, you know, maybe read your, your, your email on the air. And that's all I got for this week, guys. So I'll see you. Um, may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. All in love is fair. Losers